Welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. I'm Rick Boddy. Now, Rick, it has been an astonishing five years, I think, since we last spoke to you on the podcast about troponin. And that is five years too long in my book. I thought we should get you back on, have a chat about your favourite, everyone's favourite protein, really, and what's been happening. And then there's a trial that's just come out, published in Heart last week, done by a colleague of ours down in the southwest, Ed Carlton. And I thought we could go through that as well, the loaded study. So let's start off. Troponin, still big news, still big business. We're all using it more and more. What do you think the main aspects are that have changed over time in those last five years? A huge amount has changed over the last five years because there's been an explosion in the literature around high sensitivity troponin. One of the most important things is I think that it's now pretty well established that we should be using early rule out strategies. So if you look at the evidence now for these limited detection strategies, which we're going to discuss in a bit more detail when we get onto the loaded trial, the evidence is really overwhelming that they have high diagnostic accuracy. And now we've got this RCT, of course, loaded. So that's really important for us. We should be using those in our emergency departments to get patients out at uh, the earliest possible opportunity. And there's also lots of data to suggest that you can do the second sample a lot earlier than we ever used to. So one to three hours later, we should be doing that second sample. The majority of patients can actually be ruled out within that sort of time scale. Now, five years ago, when we were last talking, it was a six hour strategy or a 10 hour strategy in some places. Um, but we've all really established, I think in the UK anyway, this at least three hours probably for a second sample. But before we get on to that, let's just do a little bit of revision. Now, I have to highly recommend, I listened to, back again today to our troponin episodes from way back in 2014, and all the information is there. But the trial we're going to talk about does involve some troponology, where the terminology may not be familiar to everybody. So, Rick, would you mind if we just go over a couple of things? Could we just go through very quickly, what is a high sensitivity troponin? And then perhaps talk about the limit of detection. So a high sensitivity troponin assay is detecting the same troponin protein as any any troponin assay. The difference is that it can detect very small concentrations very precisely. By definition, a high sensitivity troponin can detect cardiac troponin in more than half of healthy individuals. The IFCC, which is the International Federation for Clinical Chemistry, now actually goes one step further than that and says that we should be able to detect troponin in at least 50% of men and 50% of women, a subtle but important change. And we should have adequate precision. So that means that if you test that same sample over and over again, the scatter of results that you'd get from that same sample is very little. And we measure that by the coefficient of variation. And that coefficient of variation should be less than 10% when we're measuring a sample that has the same concentration of troponin as the upper reference limit for the assay, which is the 99th percentile of values that you would get when you measure troponin in healthy individuals. So those are the two things. And again, I think it's worth repeating, isn't it, that high sensitivity in this context means analytical sensitivity, although we do go on to use it as a diagnostically sensitive test as well. Those terms, sensitivity, specificity, we can sometimes get confused with. But in this case, this is analytical sensitivity. The the tests bring increased sensitivity as a byproduct of that increased analytical sensitivity. And that's one of the key benefits. Being able to detect small concentrations means that we can put the cutoff down lower and that allows us to actually rule out more patients more accurately at the front door in the emergency department. Now, some places are already using the limit of detection and that's what this trial used that we will be talking about in a moment. Can you just explain to us what the limit of detection and maybe the limit of blank is as well? These are just terms that are often used in these trials. Very roughly speaking, the limit of blank is the highest level that you might reasonably expect to get if you measure a sample that's got no troponin in it whatsoever. 
So hence it's limit of blank because you're testing a blank. Limit of detection is subtly different to that. It's basically the lowest level of troponin that you can reasonably quantify with your assay. So most assays will report down to only the limit of detection. The exception is the Roche troponin T assay, which is often reported down to the limit of blank. So taking those two together, what we've said is that to be highly sensitive, you've got to be able to pick up troponin in 50% of males and 50% of females who are otherwise well. Picking it up means that we can find a number that's greater than the level of detection or limit of detection. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. When we come to think about this trial already, 50% of normal people, men and women, should already have a sample that's higher than the limit of detection. Yes, exactly. So they're going to be uh, what you might ordinarily term false positives with a diagnostic test because in health, they've got levels above this cutoff. But we shouldn't think of them as false positives in this context. They're just not ruled out after one test. They're going to have another test later to decide whether they might or might not have a myocardial infarction. But for those who have troponin below that cutoff, they can be ruled out. So it's an early rule out cutoff. And I think that brings us on really nicely to let's have a chat about this paper. It's really great to see randomized controlled trials coming out of emergency departments and to see multiple departments being involved in this trial itself, gathering data. And my trust, University Hospital Southampton, was actually part of this trial. So I have been involved in it to some extent. That's really my only conflict of interest to say before we talk about it. Now, Rick, you did have a role with this trial, didn't you? Yep, I was chair of the steering committee. So that's an independent role. Uh, I was involved in the oversight of the, of the trial. So although we've both had some involvement, hopefully we can give you a balanced view on how we've read the paper and what we think about it and how it may or may not affect our practice. So the paper we're going to talk about is the limit of detection of troponin discharge strategy versus usual care, a randomized controlled trial. It's been nicknamed the loaded trial. And the primary author is Ed Carlton, and he's an emergency physician down in the southwest of the UK. Rick, would you mind just taking us through a little bit of the methods of how this trial worked and what they were looking at? So this was an individually randomised trial. And what that means is that each individual patient was randomised to the two courses of action. It's a kind of test treatment trial in a way. Uh, We don't see many trials of diagnostic tests And here's one that's a great exception. So the patients were identified if they had suspected acute coronary syndromes. And what's really important, I think, to recognise is that they're low-risk patients. If you had an abnormal ECG, then you weren't going to be eligible for entry into the trial. They were really just focusing on patients who might be able to be ruled out rather than staying in for a second blood test. So they're low-risk patients identified in the emergency department and then randomised very quickly to either get standard care, in which case they just follow the local protocols, or to follow the loaded strategy, which is the strategy we've been talking about, that if your troponin is below the limit of detection of the high-sensitivity troponin assay that your hospital was using, they were potentially eligible for discharge and you could allow them to go home. They then looked for a primary outcome of successful discharge, and they defined that as discharge from the emergency department within four hours of arrival, provided that within 30 days that patient didn't go on to develop a major adverse cardiac event. And the MACE or major cardiac events often used in these cardiology trials, just confirm for us again what that actually means, because it is a range, isn't it, from needing revascularization right the way through to a death being caused by a cardiac cause. In this trial, MACE included cardiac death, type 1 myocardial infarction, or emergency coronary revascularization. So if you had any of those, it was seen that you weren't part of this strategy and then you wouldn't be able to be take part in it. 
Well, it was a it was defined as a, a not safe discharge. So if you went home within four hours, but then twenty nine days later you had emergency coronary revascularization, that was not classified as a safe discharge. Only the patients who had sent home within four hours and had nothing further happen with regard to those major adverse cardiac events within 30 days were classified as having been successfully discharged. And we can say very quickly at this point that for both groups, both in the loaded strategy and usual strategy, none of them had a major adverse cardiac event at 30 days. I think there was one in the control group who had a a major adverse cardiac event after being discharged early, but none in the intervention group. So this really is a very low risk group that we're talking about, where they haven't had anything happen to them in about the month after they were involved in the trial. So we've got eight hospitals, I think, involved, all in the southwest of England and in Cardiff. We mustn't forget the Welsh and various numbers of patients from each. They had pretty well matched groups, it looked like for the number of patients they needed. Was the power calculation appropriate as far as you could see? I was uh, had no problems with the power calculation at the time. They randomised 632 patients to the strategies, 313 to the usual rule-out and 316 to the loaded strategy. The usual rule-out strategies, I was very surprised. There is a lot of heterogeneity across those sites. We're not doing this the same by any stretch of the imagination. That's really the crucial point about this trial, I think, is having a look at what usual care constituted. So if you had a rapid rule out strategy in place at your hospital, you could still take part in the trial. What became apparent is that several of the sites did have the facility to discharge patients after one troponin test. For example, some were using the heart score. And if patients were low risk on the heart score, they would go home after one test anyway. Whereas other sites didn't have early rule out strategies that would allow patients to go home after one test. And in the and in the loaded strategy, they weren't using any of the scores, were they? They didn't use Timmy or Hart or the Manchester score. None of those. It was all about the clinician believing the patient was low risk. That's right. So I think the idea here was to study the whole cohort of patients who had troponin below the limit of detection, just as we reported in the first papers uh, nearly a decade ago, uh, looking at this strategy. We the idea was that everyone who has a troponin below the limit of detection. Uh, and a normal ECG, uh, they could go home. And that's exactly what was studied here. So we've got eight sites, all using different usual care for us to compare the loaded strategy against. And some of whom seem to be almost using a version of the loaded strategy already. Does that cause us a problem when we're looking at the results? Yes, I think so. I think that it probably accounts for what we found with regard to the results. So the, the key finding is that uh, there was no significant increase in successful discharges within four hours. That was the primary outcome of the study. So in a way, you could call this a negative trial because we didn't significantly increase safe discharges with the loaded strategy. But actually, when you look at the reasons for that, it's not because patients had more major adverse cardiac events when the loaded strategy was followed. It's not because the clinicians were failing to discharge people if they had troponin below the limit of detection. That would have been a concern that actually... Clinicians are just too nervous to send them home after one test. But in fact, 46% of the patients in the intervention group went home within four hours. So that wasn't the problem. The problem was that so many patients were being sent home after one test in the control group as well. So 37% of patients in the control group were discharged within four hours successfully. That meant that there was a 9% difference between the two groups, but it didn't actually quite meet statistical significance. It must have been right on the edge because they were they were powered to detect a 9% difference, I think. But uh, this failed to meet statistical significance. And I think the key reason is because the control group were already using those early rule out strategies. Rick, how important do you think it is that the patients going into this trial 
really go in at the clinician's discretion and we don't specify anything about who those clinicians might be. So that could be anything from a doctor who's done emergency medicine for a day through to a 20-year consultant. We're asking them to make a decision about what the level of risk is they believe for a patient having cardiac chest pain or an ACS, acute coronary syndrome. Do you think that for some of us, making that judgment is difficult? I think for all of us, that's difficult. Um, even as you get more experienced and even when it's your special area of interest, it's not. It's never an easy decision. Uh, and because of the consequences are pretty tough if you get this wrong. Missed myocardial infarction, one of the, most, one of the biggest causes of litigation and certainly for patients uh, can cause a very important adverse prognosis. So it's never an easy decision to make. But what's uh, important about this trial is it shows that when we do make those decisions, when we're bold enough and confident enough to say that actually after this one test, we can send the patient home, regardless of the grade of the doctor that was treating the patients, it was safe to do so. So there is a chance that what we've got in this group is a group who are at very low risk when they're put into the trial. Maybe some of them in other clinicians' hands we could define as no risk. And if the patient's got no cardiac risk and then we do a troponin on them, we surely expect it to be negative. But is that low prevalence of disease in our population going to make a big difference? Yes, I think so. Um, it's important to look at that. So if you had a, a population where absolutely nobody had any major adverse cardiac events, for example, then the strategy that you're investigating is always going to look safe. It wasn't quite the case in this trial. They did have some patients who developed a major adverse cardiac event. It's worth recognising that it's probably lower than in other studies. So in um, some studies, the antecedent of MACE is, is pretty high at 10 or 15%. 7% of the patients in this trial had a major adverse cardiac event within 30 days. So it's not that they weren't, they weren't MACE events out there. That suggests that the findings of safety aren't because this was a cherry-picked population that were never going to develop any events, that some of the patients were having events, but none of them who were discharged early did. Perhaps the most interesting table for me, apart from that one that shows so much difference between sites, was a little bit about the demographics and risk characteristics of the patients who went into the trial. There's one section which is described as chest pain history, brackets, clinician reported. There were some patients in here where the clinician was highly suspicious that the pain was cardiac in origin, going into a low risk strategy. Now, I'm quite surprised that people who felt a history was highly suspicious could go in. I've always thought of this Bayesian thing of, well, if you've got a highly suspicious history, that puts your pretest probability up. And therefore, even with a negative test, we should be doing something more with that patient. That doesn't seem to ring true here because there were quite a lot of patients in there. The percentages we're looking at are over 40% had a moderately or highly suspicious history. They're going into this trial. That's hundreds of patients, many of whom I never would have thought to send home after just one test. Yeah, and I think it's important that they did include those patients because we want it to be a simple strategy so that if your ECG is normal and your troponin is below the limit of detection, then you can send them home. You don't need, need to do much further thinking of, other than to think around the clinical context and whether there, there are anything, there's anything else you need to consider. But you can confidently rule out a myocardial infarction. And it's worth thinking about this as well with regard to other scores, you could say the same about the TMAX score. You could be highly suspicious of the history, but if you're very low risk with TMAX, you're actually still eligible for early discharge. Same as the heart score. So you'll score two points for being highly suspicious of the patient's history. You need to score more than three points in order to be out of the early rule out group. So you could still go home despite having a highly suspicious history. And that fits with what we know about our own clinical judgment, August Alt. We've done some work in Manchester to have a look at that. And uh, we've shown that there are limitations to uh, our clinical judgment and result in this area. When we used a five-point Likert scale and we asked the doctors to mark whether it's definitely, probably, could be, 
probably not or definitely not ACS. When they marked that it's definitely ACS, only half of those patients actually did have ACS. Uh, and we've shown that in more than one study now. So I think this is this, it's appropriate to include that group in a study of this nature. So sadly for people like me who love saying that clinical history and examination is everything, in the assessment of the patient with query cardiac chest pain, maybe history and examination isn't good enough and we do need these tests. But what this trial is telling us, which we probably knew already, is that if you can't detect a high sensitivity troponin in that patient, even early on, then the chance of their problem being cardiac in origin is very, very low indeed. And, you know, I don't think we should de-emphasise the importance of the patient's history too much. It's still critically important that we do take a full history because that's going to help us to decide whether there are other conditions that we need to suspect apart from myocardial infarction. And only the history can do that. And of course, it's going to help us interpret a positive test result. If the patient's got a high troponin, it's going to help us decide, well, what could be the cause of that troponin elevation? But there is a limit to our clinical judgment. We can't use that clinical judgment to say, well, hang on, I thought it might be ACS, but pretty unlikely that it's ACS actually. Therefore, based on this judgment that, you know, okay, it's a possibility, but not very likely, maybe I shouldn't send them home. You can't use it like that. And if you think, actually, this patient's history is really convincing. I'm very, very worried about it. Do some tests. But if you've done the tests like you've done in a loaded trial and the ECG is normal and the troponin is below the limits of detection, you can be pretty confident that that's not a myocardial infarction. The one caveat you should maybe put on that is whether you've got a very early presenter who presents within a couple of hours of their symptoms occurring. And then you might perhaps think about repeating the test uh, because there are some papers that suggest that in a very early presenter, sensitivity might dip a little bit. But I'd say that that's an exception rather than a rule, but although it is an important area where the history is essential to guide us. And that brings us on to something that I think is really important here. This is a rule-out strategy for one diagnosis. It's not a rule-in strategy to tell us what the patient's got. This trial, to me, did seem to be chasing down, okay, if we've got this, we can send the patient home. But there is a good chance that we might investigate patients for query cardiac chest pain and they've got another problem. And for me, that period of time, dare I say, where I had to wait three hours for the second troponin, often gave me chance to pause, to think, to consider what was going on, and a bit of observation. Do you think there's a small chance that we could be sending people home too early when we get these tests that are performing so well for this one diagnosis, for a presenting complaint that can cover so many different conditions? So there's no evidence of that from the trial. No evidence that we were missing important diagnoses, uh, which I think we should find reassuring. It's worth bearing in mind that let's say you had a patient and you think it might be ACS, that there are a couple of other diagnoses on your mind as well. Let's say you do the troponin and it's below the limit of detection, the ECG is normal, but you're still not confident to send that patient home. You can at least be confident that acute myocardial infarction is so unlikely that it's not really worthwhile doing a second troponin test unless you've got that very early presenter or something very unusual going on. You may need the observation for other reasons. So if you're not comfortable sending the patient home because you're still considering other diagnoses, that's absolutely fine. You can just rest assured that the diagnosis is not a myocardial infarction. So what we've said here, I think, is that you can be reassured hugely that a sample under the limit of detection for whichever assay you're using in a patient with a normal ECG is very, very reassuring. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's a ticket to home. That's a ticket to move on and think about another cause for their pain that isn't cardiac in origin. 
Exactly that. And it's exactly the same the other way around. If you've got a high troponin, it's not a ticket to the cath lab. It's a ticket to think about what might be causing that troponin to be elevated. So after this trial, Rick, you're at the forefront of this. And I'm assuming Manchester, where you work, is an early adopter for these sorts of strategies. Do you think this trial should change what we're doing? Does it concern you that there's that uh, variation in practice across what seem to be a group of hospitals that aren't geographically that far apart? Where should we be going next with this? Should we really have a UK strategy for how we're going to tackle this problem? Or is it okay that people are going off interpreting the literature and doing what they think is best? Well, we absolutely should have a UK strategy. And the good news is that we do have at least uh, an England strategy for harmonising these protocols already. So NICE is updating the uh, guidance on use of high-sensitivity troponin assays. If you go to the NICE website right now, you'll see it in draft. Uh, and you can read the full guidance, which extends the recommendations to other troponin assays apart from just Rush and Abbott, which was the case in 2014. There's a lot of support out there now for you to implement rapid rule-out pathways. The Accelerated Access Collaborative was set up to try and translate new technologies into practice much earlier than we used to do, because it takes a long time to get new things into practice. And there's great evidence with nice recommendations to back reuse of these early rule-out strategies now. So the Accelerated Access Collaborative has put together an educational programme to support trusts in implementing these pathways. Uh, There are webinars online. I've just recorded one before this podcast, in fact, where you can get lots of tips for how to successfully implement an early rule-out strategy. Free to access. Anyone can do it. What's even better, your trust will be incentivized if you're in the, if they're in the UK, incentivized to adopt these pathways. So they'll actually get paid for implementing rule-out pathways. Some of them may be able to get free reagents, free troponin reagents, if they will uh, adopt an early rule-out pathway. So the NHS will pay for it. Your trust doesn't pay any money. And then finally, this year, there will be a sequin. A sequin is one of the uh, quality targets that the NHS has to meet. And for this coming year, there's a sequin around the use of early rule-out pathways, which will be measuring whether once you've implemented your rule-out pathway, are you actually following it? And if you successfully are and your patients are getting two troponin tests within three hours, as we should be doing when they come to the emergency department with suspected ACS, apart from those you've been able to rule out with one test then you get actually extra money. So you shouldn't be waiting six hours between the tests. If you can do it in three and a half hours or less, then you're going to get extra money for your trust. And that those are the national initiatives that will actually support you to um, implement. Uh, one last thing I should mention is that NICE has an adoption toolkit as well uh, that you can find on the website that can support you in developing these rapid rule-out pathways. And in Greater Manchester, we've been doing some work on this for a few years now with Health Innovation Manchester, our academic health science network. So we've also put together some resources to help people implement rapid rule-out pathways. And we've been working across our region to implement TMAX as an early rule-out pathway. And as all the great podcasters say, we'll add all of those links to the show notes. There is also a blog post, which I've written with my personal interpretation of this trial and how I think it might affect my practice to go alongside this podcast itself. So Rick, in summary, let me see if I've understood, because if I've understood, then I'm very optimistic that pretty much every one of our listeners can understand. Where we're at with troponin is the high sensitive troponin test we believe is a good test. It's great for ruling out the presence of a cardiac cause when a patient presents to the emergency department with chest pain. If they present early and they've got a first sample that's below the limit of detection, depending on what that assay is, we can be pretty sure that in that low risk group with a normal ECG, their pain is not being caused by a cardiac 
condition. If, on the other hand, their first test is above that limit of detection, but below the 99th centile, we can do a second test at three hours to check there's been no rise and there's nothing gone above that. And with that strategy, again, with a normal ECG and a low-risk patient, then those patients as well, we can also pretty confidently say they have not had a cardiac origin for their pain. And those patients then we can take out of our needing to think about cardiac causes as a a reason to investigate them further and move on to decide whether or not we need to investigate them using some other tools, whether we're reassured with our history and examination that actually we believe whatever this patient has, we can't necessarily give it a name, but it's not one of those highly worrying, concerning things that we need to investigate further. And that patient can now be followed up as an outpatient, maybe by their family doctor or in an outpatient setting. Does that feel like a decent summary of where we're at? I think that's a great summary, Ian. Well, I'm really glad because after talking to you, Rick, if I wasn't able to put something together, then I'd be worried about me. Now, it is an absolute delight to have you, Rick. We should probably say the Americans and Canadians always say conflicts of interest. And I know the cynics and the skeptics will say, well, this is Rick. He's just into troponin. It's, uh, It's paying his mortgage. Are there any reasons that we should worry about the effect of industry on these results? Are industry heavily involved with NICE pushing this stuff? Or can we trust that this is actually a good thing and we're not being played by all those mysterious people in boardrooms? No, I don't think there's any reason to to believe that this is, these are tainted results in any way. I mean, this, this trial that Ed ran was completely independent of industry and evaluated a number of different assays. This was, there was a Beckman assay, the Roche assay, I think there were some sites with the Abbott assay. It's independent of industry. It's really important, I think, to get the message across that all of these troponin tests are commercially supplied. If you want to evaluate them, you've got to work with industry. You've got to work with the manufacturer providing them in order to get the, the science out there that is going to affect our clinical practice. There's no NHS troponin test. So there's always some involvement of industry. But here you can see the results that we've presented today unloaded, completely independent of industry. So I'm reassured by that. And actually, Rick, you're one of the straightest, most honest men I've ever met. So I have absolutely no fear about you presenting anything other than what you believe to be scientifically the truth. But I know that there are some out there who would be sceptical that promoting this in in the way that we perhaps seem to be doing with early adoption may be related to something else, but we can reassure you that certainly for myself and Rick, it's not the case. Rick, it's a delight to have you on the podcast. Please, can you do some more trials on troponin, or at least can we find some more to talk about? Because it's great having you on. While we're here, we should just say we're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, and Rick has been doing some amazing work with the webinars for the college, getting the evidence out there, making sure that we've all got what we need to know to make the best decisions for our patients. And I know that comes at a huge personal cost and the amount of work that's going in for that. Thank you again for listening to the St. Emily's podcast. If you enjoy it, please tell your friends, like and subscribe and all those things that podcasters say you should do. And we'll be back very soon with some more evidence-based medicine and other thoughts from the team. Until then, take care. Take care.